people always uh, think sometimes when the scriptures are rather uh, terse and hard about certain things that somehow or another it's not a message of hope. I find great hope in this. It's kind of like the message of Jonah to the uh, city of Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Most people say, well, where's the grace in that kind of a message? Well, God didn't have to say anything at all. And that's where, indeed, we need to be able to wake up and realize that God has given us a message, a message of hope. That in the latter days, there was going to be these who are false teachers and false prophets. And that, indeed, even though they become so prevalent, it seems like it's impossible to separate the truth from error in our day. Yet at the same time, we need to know that God knows about it. This is not surprising him. And so therefore, you and I, as we look at the scriptures today, we need to, <coughs> forgive me, we need to be able to hear what God is saying to us as his people. Our text today tells of a terrific threat to the truth of the message of Christ. For a group of so-called Christians who are false teachers and false prophets, which are identified as being in and considered a part of the local assembly of God's people, yet they are clearly declared, defined, and designated as being twice dead. It's kind of a hard thing for us to understand when it's talking about the people of God. How can they be twice dead and be declared to be the people of God at the same time? Well, therein lies the issue today with what I call zombie Christians. Allow me to give you uh, an example of this kind of condemning judgment against those who claim to be followers of God and uh, those who know the Lord, claiming to represent the truth of who he is. In Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus declares, for you are like a whitewashed tomb, which indeed appeared beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all, oh, thank you, brother, and all uncleanness, verse 28, even as you also outwardly appear uh, righteous, to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawless, lawlessness. Now, of course, the, Jesus is speaking of the scribes and Pharisees, even as you appear outwardly. And uh, that's not talking about Christians, okay? Beloved, our day is reserved and marked out by the Lord as a time when we are to watch, wait, and guard his truth. That is according to Luke 18, verses 6 through 8. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he find faith on the earth? 
That sounds like slim pickings to me. When Jesus returns to this earth, instead of expecting a huge mass of Christianity who is overwhelmed and glad and, and joyous at the return of Christ, I think that there's going to be very few who are going to be standing there and saying, thank God, the Lord has come. What a question to ponder. Notice what is declared by our Lord in this passage. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Again, this sounds almost like it's a dire situation that those who were so religious in that day, Jesus' condemnation against them says, you appear as being whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but you're full of wickedness, you're full of evil, you're full of sin. First, note that the ones who are identified here in this text were the leaders of the Jewish faith of Jesus' day. Now, I only bring that out so that you might contemplate and think perhaps that it's declaring the same thing could happen in our day. I mean, it's very difficult for us to think in these terms, folks, because like the frog that sits in the pan of water, when they turn the heat on, he's comfortable. And as the heat gets more and more built up in the water, he continues to be comfortable. He doesn't recognize the danger that he's in until it's too late and his goose is cooked. We need to see that we need to be alert. We need to be aware. We need to be watching. We need to be listening. And we need to be striving for the faith that was once delivered. Because the one we have today is not the right faith that God's word declares. And I say the one we have, not our church in particular, but the common thought of Christianity out there, they're not following the truth. And I thank God that we are in a church where I know the gospel, the true gospel of grace is proclaimed. And I know that the people of God are people of prayer. And I know that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives to cause us to be drawn to the truth of Christ and to be drawn in fellowship with Christ. I think that there is a genuine relationship in this church that desires to see and to live a holy life before their God. I think that's the kind of Christianity we want to talk about and that we want to experience. These of Jesus' day, who were the leaders of the Jewish faith, they were the elite of the religion of the Jews. This was, You couldn't get any higher. Uh, these were the folks who made all the rules and proclaimed all the truth for everyone. That's a scary thought, that it could get so polluted and distorted that you can't find the truth though you may look for it 
in many, many places. I often have said that I think one of the most charming and delightful messages that we can find in the scripture is when Simeon and Anna, who were looking for the consolation of Israel, were in the temple, the same temple as the Sadducees, Pharisees, and the scribes were in, but they were in the temple and they were looking for their Messiah. They weren't a part of the wickedness and the distortion of the truth that the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees all were speaking and, and declaring. But they were looking for their true Messiah. They were looking for the truth of God. And yet, here they are in the same temple as everybody else. I wonder if that's you today. Are you so enamored with Christ and so desirous to see him that you're looking for your Messiah, the promised one to come. He did promise, you know, if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That's a promise, guaranteed promise from Jesus Christ. To note that Jesus, our Lord, uses this example of a whitewashed tomb to make a comparison between those who have a living faith and those who only pretended faith in God, but, in fact, who are decaying, rotting, and spiritually dead unto God. Yet they were described as animated and physically alive to do only evil continually, as we see in the first declaration by God of how bad a society and the world as a whole can get. That's from Genesis 6-5 to do evil only continually. That's, that's hard for us to comprehend because we like to believe that it can't be that bad. It can't be that bad. I mean, not everybody's a politician, right? Thank you, I appreciate that little smile. <laughs> a lot of them are Baptist preachers and it can be that bad. We just have to recognize that we can't be a part of that, that we shouldn't be a part of it, that we don't want to be a part of it. In Genesis 6, 5 is where that declares the fact that they were only evil continually. Beloved, this was the sovereign Lord's condemnation of the world that was, that is, the world that was before the flood, okay? The people of the first creation that perished in Noah's worldwide flood. Three, note that this passage was a condemnation against the Jewish faith of Jesus' day, the one which is uh, we just read a few minutes ago. When our Lord was preaching a message of saving grace to all who called themselves believing Jews, observe that in fact, they did have a belief system, that is, the Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes. They did have a belief system, which they followed, but it was a man-made religion, one that was based on their own traditions, man-made laws, and religious regulations. It wasn't God's word. It was what they devised as being the right way to practice their faith. It was not based on thus says the Lord. Jesus stated their error in this manner. 
In Mark chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, it declares, For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the traditions of men, the washing of pots and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. Now, how many have watched TV this weekend? Any, anybody? Okay. How many of you have been watching the Pope and everything that he's been doing? Nobody? You want to see the candles? You want to see the smoke? Do you want to see the liturgy that they go through? Is there anything necessarily wrong with that? No. But most of it is not dependent on what the scripture says. Most of it is man-made tradition. Folks, it's not just the Catholic Church. I know even in our own church that 30-some years ago, and I was trying to think of how long ago that really was, but anyhow, a long time ago, this church had certain things that it did but with time, those things changed. Not, not necessarily bad things and not necessarily good things, just things. And they change with time. As people change, things change. The thoughts, the way we sing our songs, the way we take up our offerings, the kind of things that we do as far as going out and greeting people or how we witness to the world around us, all those things in my lifetime, I have seen change. I can remember as a young teen going out and knocking on doors and encouraging people to come and worship the Lord. We have a missionary who took over a church down in Ann Arbor, Briarwood Baptist Church. He has knocked on every door in his entire community and not one response. Not one response has come out of that effort. Not one. We are living in a day and age in which the Jehovah's Witnesses and some of the others that knock on doors, um, they seem to be able to find a lot of Baptists who are not happy with the Baptist faith, and they say they make the best converts to their belief system. Well, I can believe it because the word of God is not being taught. It's not being proclaimed from the pulpits. We are not hearing a message today that is striking the fear of God in people's hearts. And they go away, oh hum, another Sunday, another day at God's house. I have a friend up north that uh, I gave him a copy of uh, John Owen's uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. <laughs> he read that, and he'd never seen it before. He read it, and he says, wow, what a response. What an amazing message. Him talking about them dangling over the pit of hell in a spider's, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not a web, but a, uh, what? Yeah. It's the, the string that comes down out of the spider. Anyhow, something as weak and as uh, so fearfully 
created as a spider's, uh, whatever it is. <laughs> Here they are hanging there and knowing and realizing that they're that close to hell and they don't know what to do about it. I don't know, have you ever read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Raise your hands if you have. Okay, uh, three or four people here. Will you agree with me? It's scary. And people were clinging to the handrails and to the pillars in the building and crying out for God to save them. Now, how long has it been since you've been in church where that's happened? How long has it been since you've seen people who can't wait to come to Jesus and who are genuinely moved by the gospel of grace to change their life and to live a different way? We have lots of people who are getting saved today. And they're doing the same thing they always did. That is not the salvation of scripture. That is not the change of soul and life that God's word declares takes place when the Holy Spirit moves in and the Satan moves out. And so I encourage you today to think about some of these things. For note that these so-called believers, false Christians, are said to appear righteous in an outward sense, but are instead spiritually dead to the message of God and the authority of his word. Exactly what I just said. That they hear it, but they don't want to live by it. You might even label these men as religious monsters in the way they distort, deceive, and influentially destroy people's lives by teaching and preaching lies all in the name of God. This morning, Ed did a fantastic job speaking about original sin and about what happened when Eve was deceived by Satan. And there's so much there. It is just incredible when you begin to dig and think about what's going on. Well, some years ago, a young lady by the name of Mary Shelley, born August 30th of 19, or 1797, not 1997, 1797, was traveling in Europe at the ripe old age of 19, she wrote a novel called Frankenstein, which was later published in the year of 1818. The impetus for this effort was a challenge by her brother and other friends who were reading horror stories at the time, and each one in their group was challenged to write a horror story, and they were to later uh, vote and choose the best one written. I suppose today or I suppose today's message of the spiritual apostasy that has influenced the saints of God in our day should be called a horror story of sorts because it has distorted, destroyed, and damaged the Christian message today. You know, it's very hard to hear the truth of Scripture today. We have a lot of really talented and great preachers but you know, the sad part about it is, rather than following the word of God as close as humanly possible, they follow what they were taught in school. And those teachers in school followed what they were taught in school. 
And those teachers that then became uh, school uh, teachers followed what they were taught. And through the centuries, the truth of God's word has slowly begun to be distorted. And we don't know it. We're like that frog in the pot. We accept today that everything is fine because we don't see the difference between how we are living and how the past Christians lived and served their God. It's one of the reasons why I appreciate our brother, uh, can't think of his name, but uh, uh, give me a second. Um, isn't that terrible? Kate Clayton, Brother Clayton, thank you. Nothing wrong with me. Anyhow, he loves history. And he has done several studies in the past on Christian history. And he came to the conclusion on his own that something's amiss. <laughs> Things have changed. And it's not necessarily for the good. Do you realize that we didn't even use the name church as Baptist until the early 1800s? But that's the only way that we could keep from having our people taxed to support somebody else's ministry. We had a meeting house. We had a place where we were able to share the word of God together. We didn't have a church. The main reason is because the reformers are the ones who came up with the word church. It doesn't have anything to do with the godly independent individual gathering of God's people to be able to worship and serve the Lord. I know that's hard for you to understand, but when you try to explain to somebody that the word church doesn't mean church, they look at you like, what? I mean, it has got to be one of the greatest mysteries of our age. What happened to the church? Well, it's went the way of all flesh. That's how it's happened. It not only was named by men, but it was defined by men. It's declared by men that this is what we should be at or where we should be uh, serving the Lord and worshiping together. I like the scriptural declaration that we are the ecclesia, the called out and called together, redeemed people of God. That, to me, makes sense. Because many in the church today are not redeemed. They've not been saved, but they are pretend Christians. And the more pretend Christians that you have, the more possibility of error creeps in to define what Christianity is, rather than the scriptures. And that's what we need to be aware of. So you may ask, what does the novel Frankenstein have to do with our message today? Well, here's the thought. I want us to consider the possibility of there being such a thing as those who are described as the living dead. Is it possible for men to be alive and yet be dead at the same time? Ephesians 2.89, you who were once dead have now been made alive by the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is that 
sense in the scriptures where it uses that term. They were dead spiritually. But when they're born from above, it's a new birth, it's a new life in Christ Jesus. Now, our text in Jude seems to indicate the fact that it is uh, possible for those who are religious to suffer from such a condition as being alive physically yet dead toward God. These are spots, he uses the term, Jude does, in your love feasts. Now, love feast is just another word for uh, the Lord's table. In your love feast, while they, the spots, feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, that alone should make you have a sense in which you would recognize they can't be Christian if all they care about is themselves. Amen? They are laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Notice the following thoughts concerning those who are here identified as being twice dead. I can't read the clock with my glasses on. I can barely read the clock with my glasses off. So we will now begin to preach the message. First, those who practice a pretend faith. These are spots in your love feasts. Number one, note that perhaps a better word for spots as it is used in this context would be a blemish, blight, or blotch as these unregenerate men mar and sully the true character of God's people. I don't know about you, but I don't mind if they want to live that way, but I hate to have them have me named among them. I don't want to be known as a so-called Christian who is living like hell who is living without concern for what God's word says, who are living, as it were, without any authority over me but my own belief system. Whatever happened to us following Jesus? They practice a false faith, one that indeed uses God's words to distract, distort, and deceive the saints of the living Christ, but their motivating actions spilled forth out of a heart of godless faith, self-indulgence, and unrighteous conduct. These are spots in your love feasts, Jude says. Spots in your love feasts. There's something about them. It's, it's like having a white shirt and having a spot of gravy on it someplace. Can you see the gravy? Yeah. It shows up immediately. Well, we should be able to see those who are pretend Christians as we gather for the Lord's table. We ought to be able to see them as being spots among a holy group of people who desire to serve and worship their Christ, their God. And yet, sometimes we don't seem to have the, the ability to discern what's going on. Two, note that the Apostle Paul gave this stern warning to the saints at Corinth about such evil men as these, who claimed spiritual life, but demonstrated by their empty, vain, and fruitless conduct that they were without spiritual discernment concerning 
the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad that today the message of the gospel of grace is still seen and still proclaimed by those who are truly desirous of worshiping Christ in the Lord's table. I mean, you can't look at the Lord's table unless you really distort it tremendously. Like I remember when I was a young kid, there was a campus crusade group that were out on the, on the shores of some lake and they decided they were going to, they decided they were going to partake in the Lord's table. But they didn't have any wafers and they didn't have any wine, they didn't have any any unleavened bread, and they didn't have any juice, and so they used saltine crackers and orange juice to commemorate the Lord's table. They decided it. As far as I know, it's a church ordinance. If you're not in a church with the church people who are members there, how can you be taking the Lord's table? It's not just a willy-nilly do it whenever you want to, wherever you want to, but it's do it God's way. Wow, I don't get it. Yet no one stops to say this is not what God's word says. Are we so strict, so narrow that we can only do what God's word says? I hope so. I hope so. Because there's a reason why he gave it to us. There's a reason why he declared it in remembrance of him. It's not to celebrate you and I, but it's to celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection. Paul stated this with regard to their warped views of the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 21. And by the way, this is not something that's happened just today. This has been going on for a very long time. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? I would say, I sure hope so. Would that be your answer? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Does it not represent the body of Christ? Does it not represent the blood of Christ? Well, if it's not remembering Christ, what's it for? Just you and I to fill our bellies? Just for you and I to talk about what's new in baseball this week? Just for you and I to discuss whether or not the, uh, we need a new president or should we just keep the one we got? We need to see what the scriptures are saying. For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. We are all part of the body of Christ. That's what these things are representing. That's what they're showing. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Now, where did demons come in there? Why does Paul end this with demons? Because any distortion of the truth of God's word and the way that we are to celebrate the remembrance of the Lord, to celebrate, do this in remembrance of who? Jesus Christ. Any distortion to that is a lie that Satan is trying to 
spread among us. Hear what Paul is saying here. Distortion of the practice of the Lord's table is demonic in origin. It is teaching that, is, that comes from the pit of hell. Three, note that although there, uh, these men may have sat and eaten together with the true saints of God, they do not eat as unto the Lord. Look at what it says there in Jude. But they ate to their own bellies, desires, gluttony, and self-indulgence. Their feasting was always about themselves and never about celebrating the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, their Lord. 2 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, But there was also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. You ever heard uh, somebody uh, in our day that has said uh, uh, that they're a Christian because they made a, a choice for the Lord? They made a decision for Christ? Not that God saved them in spite of their wickedness and that by grace he drew them to them, but they're proclaiming in, in not a little way, I did this. Well, I thought God was the one who saved us. I didn't know that we did it. Listen to their words, and you will know those who are true and those who are not true. For note that Jude calls this time of celebrating a love feast, yet these false Christians were only filled with self-love. By using this term, Jude was not saying that these pretend Christians were celebrating their love for one another, but they were celebrating their self-love and not a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the message of God. Jesus gave these instructions to the apostles the night before his death. The apostle Paul repeated our Lord's instruction of that night saying this, 1 Corinthians 11:23 through 26, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, "Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me." In the same manner, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, or do this, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. What is the communion table about? It's about Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. It's not about you and me. It's not about us celebrating how wonderful we are. I'm such a good Christian. I'm not like you. I made the choice to come to Christ. I'm glad that I'm not like others, like this poor publican over here. 
Aren't you glad that you're not like others? Unfortunately, we're all like others. We are all sinners, either saved by grace or not saved at all. One camp or the other. So, as you can see, the scriptures are crystal clear in declaring, teaching, and intention of the purpose of the table that it was for the celebration of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and not about us, but it was about him and his redemptive cross work at Calvary. Number five, note that this teaching, uh, this teaches us, rather, about these religious monsters speaking of the nature of their so-called faith who celebrated gleefully alongside the true saints of God, but their participation was only for the purpose of satisfying their own greed, lust, and fleshly desires. These, Jude says, are spots in your love feasts. A, note that these pretend Christians were accepted as fellow believers of that local assembly. Now that should scare us, because we might have this problem too. I hope not, but it's possible. Jude defines them as being destructive in their influence, practice, and witness of Jesus Christ's people. Our text makes a distinction between these two different types of religious people in their conduct, practice, and their intent, and the true believers of Christ whom they were eating with. B, note that... Uh, there is a twofold warning given here by the writer Jude. There are those who assail against the truth of the gospel who are outside the church of God, and those who attack the people and work of God from within his assembly. Now, that ought to be just absolutely crystal clear in our minds. If you're going to be attacked, it can only be outside or inside. There is no other. It's either outside the church or inside the church. Amen? Okay. Two, those that practice religion without fear. They feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Checking the time. Note One, note that these wicked men are described as being fearless. Our text states that they are celebrating the Lord's table without even the slightest twinge of conscience or concern for the proper keeping of the Lord's table. Uh, you know, the scriptures declare that we're to be keepers of things. That means to watch over it, to guard it, to keep it, to hold it near, to not let it go, but to maintain our relationship with it, to be keepers of the word of God. The Apostle Paul warned these who ate the Lord's table with unrighteous motives that in so doing they could actually be judged by God and die as the result of their unworthy and wicked conduct. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 31, Therefore, whoever eats this bread, the bread of the Lord's table, or drinks this cup of the Lord, in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let the man exam but let man, a man, examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, or a better understanding of this, which be many are dead or have died. Now, that, that is very powerful, isn't it? But did you notice that the word unworthy is used twice in that text? Twice. If he brings up the idea that the Lord's table can be done in an unworthy manner, it ought to mean to us that we guard it that much close, more closely. Because we don't want to do anything that is not according to the word of God. We don't want to do what doesn't please the Lord. So, it's important. Number two, note that the fact of this condemning judgment pronounced, being pronounced upon those who are pretend Christians, this is the very reason for me thinking of them as being presented by the, represented, I should say, by the monster Frankenstein. Let me ask you a question. What is the premise of Mary uh, Shelley's story of Frankenstein? It's easy for me to say. She asked the question, is it possible to take dead parts of completely different individuals and by sewing those body parts back together to make the whole being a gr grotesque piece by piece com a compiled monster and in the process somehow uh, giving it new life. Now we know that today that's impossible because we have learned in science that that's not possible to do. You have so many genetic differences. You have uh, blood type differences. You, it's not just sewing us back together and somehow or another giving us a spark of life. But they didn't know that back then. So her premise was that if you could just sew the good parts back together and somehow or another give it life, well, what did they choose to give it life? What was the process? Electricity, it was lightning. You remember how the lightning comes down the pole that they had on the house and it, <laughs> it's alive, it's alive. Well, it would be even fried more if it really happened that way. <laughs> Crispy critter is more like what Frankenstein should have been called. But of course, the imagination of Hollywood, they were able to Make him walk and live. Well, that was my premise. Dear Saint, only God can give life, both physical and spiritual, to that which is otherwise considered dead or non-living. That is the reason we have had you read the passage in Ezekiel about the dry bones. Listen to Ezekiel's answer to the Lord. Ezekiel 37, 3, And he, the sovereign Lord, said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Well, Ezekiel answers, So I answered, O Lord God, you alone know. You only know. Why? Because God is the giver of life. Amazing stuff.
Number three, note that being among God's people, practicing a religious belief system, talking and sounding like other Christians, being among God's people, practicing a religious belief system, talking and sounding like other Christians does not make you or make someone a true believer. That's amazing. You mean that I can't just sound like a Christian? I got to actually live like one? I got to really trust God? Yeah. I got to really have faith? Not just faith in what I know works, but faith in God beyond what I'm capable of? Beyond my own abilities or my own power? It's not like turning on a light switch. You've seen that work before. That's not faith. It's not like sitting in a chair. You've seen that work before. Although I have sat on one and had it fall on me, it's still not like that. Because having faith in God is believing in the unseen power and ability of our God to do whatever he wants to do. That's like uh, Peter walking on the water. That's like Moses going up in the mountain and talking with God. Wow. Everything else would have been destroyed, and yet Moses says, Lord, let me talk with you. <laughs> Isn't that faith? It is. Okay. Number three, note that being among God's people, practicing a religious belief system, talking and sounding like other Christians does not make someone a true believer in Jesus Christ. Those who, merely, uh, who are merely religious in their conduct or those who are only pretend to be Christians, uh, beware, for such individuals as those are still dead, still dead, in their sins. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If we're dead in trespasses and sin, it's only God who can change that. It's only God who can make us alive who are dead. We can't ask for a lightning bolt to do it. We can't ask for anything in this world to give us life except the giver of life who is God. For note that these pretend Christians are defined by their behavior and conduct as serving only themselves. They feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Remember the old song? Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I might live for thee. A beautiful old hymn. It has great truth to it. I remember the first time I ever heard of a joy. Um, they used to call it Bible um, Vacation Bible School. And Donna came along and said, we're going to have a, a joy time for the kids in the summer. 
and it stood for Jesus, others, and you. You know that that is the true sense in which Christianity works as it truly should work? It ought to be Jesus, others, and then last, you. It ought to be Jesus, others, and you. You see, that's, that's the difference between Christianity and the rest of religious uh, uh, people and, and their doctrines. They want to give God glory, but they want to be sure they get their, their share too. Me next, Lord, rather than putting ourselves last. And that's the true sense of how Christianity should work. Jesus, others, and you. They feast, you, uh, they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Praise the Lord that he always has his true Christians, his true children. The Christian community is one that is supposed to be completely and radically given over, separated from the world, and devoted to the work and purpose of serving Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom. Even in the last days of earth, when spiritual things will be so dark and, and bleak, God gives us this witness that his true saints will still be gathering in his name to worship. Jesus taught the disciples to pray and make this request of God in his model prayer. Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew 6 and verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. There's no point at which we can say that God's will won't be done. And that his kingdom is coming, that his will will continue to be done, and that indeed we are to say on earth, as it is in heaven. That's still here. Are you on earth? I am. Maybe too much. I am. The Apostle Paul as well wrote to the Philippian believers and said this about their worship and service for Christ. Philippians 1, 27 through 29, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ. Now, I wish I could burn that into your minds today. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Wow, what a statement. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them, but it's also a sign to us, brother, sister. This is a sign to them, those who oppose the truth, that they will be destroyed, but it is a sign, and I've added that, that you will be saved and that by God. Hallelujah. 
For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Now, there's a lot of people today that don't like that word suffer. They don't want to, oh, I'd be glad to sing songs to Jesus. I'd be glad to attend services and hear good gospel music, hear good gospel preaching, but I don't want to suffer for Jesus. Well, I got news for you. That's our calling. That's our calling in Christ Jesus. That as he suffered, he left us an example that we should be like him. Wow. Yes. That we should be like him. God has called us so that we will understand that we can't get closer to God in our desire to be like him than to serve like he did. Amen? Number five, note that these pretend Christians are identified as those false teachers who will be found in Christ's church in the last days. The apostasy of Christ's church or the falling away of those who claim to know Christ as their Lord was predicted as being a sign of the Lord's sure, soon, and sudden return. Jesus said this about false Christ in Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16. We beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. We were talking this morning about the word or the term uh, falling away, apostasy. Well, you have to be part of something before you can fall away from it. So those who are falling away are part of something, but they're not the same as those who are true Christians. They're part of something. They're on the outside looking in. They're not part of God's people. Amen? Know them by their fruits. Again, we read this about pretend Christians in Matthew 7, 21 through 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I would say that that's a uh, very important thing to establish among God's people. You can't really be a true Christian unless you're striving to do the Father's will. Unless you're striving to live as the word of God declares we should live. Every writer of the New Testament record has declared to us that these false teachers and pretend Christians would play a role in the degradation, destruction, and demise of the Lord's church and his message of saving grace. The book of Revelation describes the role of these pretend Christians in the church of Laodicea, whose character is said to be tepid, lukewarm, and cool towards the Lord and the truth of his declared word. The Apostle John wrote this about those so-called Christians, Revelation 3, verses 14 through 19. These things says the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. You are neither cold 
nor hot. What's halfway between cold and hot? Lukewarm. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have no need uh, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Those are Christ's words. They're not mine. If you don't like those words, talk to him. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments, uh, that you may be clothed, that uh, uh, the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I, the sovereign Lord, rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. How long has it been since you repented of anything? Now, remember, it's just not saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I got caught. Repentance is saying that I'm going to change. That by the power of God's help, I'm going to stop doing this and do all that I can to be more like Christ. See, that's New, that's New Testament teaching on repentance. Dear brother, this is God speaking. Are you listening? Number three, those who are identified as twice dead. They are laid out on trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Now, this is kind of cryptic, but it's still, nonetheless, a very important passage for us to try to understand. Beloved, our text gives this description of these wicked and evil men who appear in outward form as saints of God, but are, in fact, goats, unbelievers, in sheep's clothing. We call them pretend Christians that are false teachers who are twice dead. Hear them. They are described as being twice dead because they were trees with no spiritual fruit. Now, he says, by their fruit you shall know them. They have no spiritual fruit. I didn't say they didn't give lots of money. I didn't say that they try to do things in the name of Christ. I said that they don't know him. And more importantly, he doesn't know them, savingly. They're described as being twice dead. They are late autumn trees without fruit. Fruit trees in the late summer season should show evidence of their nature by bearing fruit. What would you think if you had an apple orchard and you had an apple tree and it had no apples on it at all? What good is an apple tree with no apples? What good is a Christian with no spiritual fruit? Wow. Is it that important? Yes. Fruit trees in the late summer should bear fruit. 
As such, we as true children of God should show evidence of our spiritual nature by having spiritual fruit evident in our lives. However, these fruit trees were absolutely dead, twice dead. Okay? Inasmuch, in a rather a much more serious way, because they were rootless with no attachment personal relationship or spiritual connection to the Savior, the life-giving sustenance of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that gives us life, is he not? They are pulled up by the roots. Jesus told this to his disciples, that he was the true vine, and you and I, beloved, are his true branches. If we bear spiritual fruit, John 15, 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, does not abide in me. Okay? He is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. How would you make this same statement in a more positive way? That sounds like the, the law. The law is, is called a negative uh, declaration. Thou shalt not. It, it isn't saying that you should do all that you can to make your marriage uh, as good as, as God intends it to be. It says that thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, that's, that's a pretty narrow view, actually, isn't it? But adultery is between husband and wife. Or somebody else's husband and wife, however you want to look at it. So it's very clear that this is a statement that is what I would call negative. But how do you make it a positive statement? Well, let me try, okay? Anyone who abides in me will bear spiritual fruit. Now, that's a positive statement. Anyone, anyone who abides in me will bear spiritual fruit. Is Christ righteous? Is Jesus holy? Was the Lord obedient to his Father's will? Beloved, we get our spiritual life from him. Thus, we should be like him. We must be like him. We belong to him and no other. I'm going to close. But I encourage you to understand that we live in a day in which we are to be on guard about the things we practice and the things that we preach and be sure that it aligns with what the scripture says and don't allow our lives to be ruled and to have the authority of man-made things over us. Amen? All right, let's stand and we'll be dismissed with prayer. Um, Brother Doug Clayton has got a handout, and he's going to come up here and uh, hand out 